I think right now we need each other badly. And the reason I say that is, I mean, life's just hard. I mean, between COVID, between things that are going on in the world, and beyond that, it just seems like there's just, it's been crazy the number of people who have uh, contacted me recently because a family member, friend, somebody they know ha- has died. I don't know if you all have kind of experienced the same thing, but uh, just a, a lot of difficult things that are, that are going on. And one of the themes that runs through the book of Philippians is this idea of unity, this idea of ministering to each other, this idea uh, that we do need each other. And many of you live this way. Many of you are serving other people, and I say thank you for that. You know, but some of you, are, you need ministry but you're kind of hiding from other people. Some of you, maybe you kind of, you come to church, but you're not really connected with other people. You're not in community. You're not in a small group. You're not serving others. You're not ministering to others. And, you know, the Bible teaches us as a church that we're a body, that it takes all of us working uh, together, that, you know, the idea is we give ministry and, and, and we receive ministry. And, you know, there's been so many times that people have been there for us, and that's part of the idea of the church. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, I think about the first time that Molly had a seizure just completely out of the blue, and all the people who showed up uh, at, at, at the hospital, or uh, Robin had to have her gallbladder out when Lily was a baby and had this weird thing happen where, you know, everything went great with the surgery, came home, everything seemed fine, and then uh, that night, uh, she started bleeding out from uh, the surgical in- incision. And we're like, is she having internal bleeding? Is she dying? You know, what's going on here? We're calling 911. And, it, I mean, it turned out that just one of the incisions had popped loose. And so it looked terrible, but it really wasn't that big a deal other than, you know, a trip to the hospital, spending the night at the hospital, those kind of things. But, I mean, I remember at some point in that, you know, just walking out and there being all these people, uh, friends, people from church, you know, in the lobby of the hospital. I'm like, how do all these people even know uh, that that this has happened? But it meant a lot. Um, I remember when when we had the fire at the church, uh, I think it was eight years ago, and, you know, things spread fast through social media. Uh, I mean, all these people are showing up, you know, uh, for support and encouragement. And we had a guy named Mark Asbell who's spoken here a couple of times. He lives in Anderson, South Carolina. He texted me literally while the building was still on fire. Uh, I mean, he had seen it on Facebook or, or something like that. And uh, it was kind of strange in a way, you know, again, news travels fast in 2021. But it was encouraging, you know, to, to hear from him at that moment. We need each other. Um, the second message in this series from chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, was titled, We Instead of Me. And it's the mindset that God wants us to have. It's, it's the mindset that uh, Paul is trying to uh, encourage us to have in, in Philippians, that we live with the conviction that my life isn't just about me, it's about us. And, and in those verses that morning, we talked about the fact that um, we're connected together uh, through the gospel. We're partnered together for the gospel. 
We're secure together in the gospel, and because of that, we're to thank God for each other, we're to pray for each other, and then we're to live life in a way where we're loving each other and we're thinking about each other. And so I want to pick back up on that because I think Paul kind of picks back up on that thread here at the beginning of chapter 2. I want to call today's message, we instead of me, but add this phrase, because of him. We instead of me, because of him. Because really the big idea of this text is that uh, Jesus, or as followers of Jesus, the way that we treat others is modeled by, empowered by, and commanded by Jesus. In other words, if I say that I'm a Christian, the way that I treat you, with the understanding, of course, that I'm not Jesus, you're not Jesus, we're not always going to get it right, but then there's some commands in Scripture that tell us what to do when that happens as far as going to one another and talking to each other and forgiving one another and, and, and things like that. But as followers of Jesus... The way we treat each other is to be modeled by, follow the example of Jesus, empowered by Jesus in us, and then out of obedience to the commands of Jesus. So let's look at this text. And instead of starting at verse 1, we're going to look at verses 5 through 11 and then kind of swing around to the beginning because I want to ground it in the example of Jesus and then, um, you know, out of that, show us how he empowers us to do it, and then look at what exactly it is that he tells us to do. So again, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying, think like me, but remember, the way that we live is produced by the way that we think. What we really believe is what we do. So if we want to change the way we live, the key is to change the way that we think. He says, think like Jesus, and you'll live more like Jesus. So he says, live with this mindset, live with these beliefs, live with this conviction that Jesus is our example. Now, the question is, what is the example that he sets here? Well, I want us to walk kind of quickly through verses 6 through 11. And I want to just kind of give an overview of the theology of this. Uh, this is an amazing passage, but we're looking at more of the practical side of this today. The plan is, if a plan is actually worth anything in COVID world, but, but the plan is the Sunday before Christmas to finish up Philippians, we're going to circle back to verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2 and take a deep dive into this idea of the incarnation, the coming of Jesus Christ as a man. Uh, and, and it's a, just a mysterious, beautiful, uh, amazing passage. Uh, but I don't have time to fully unpack it, but just let, let's just look at it briefly because we've got to understand this to understand the rest of the passage. So it says in verse 6, he says, Who, talking about Jesus, being in the form of God, or it could literally be translated, who being in the very nature God. Verse 6 is saying that Jesus is God. And, you know, the New Testament continually 
tells us that. That Jesus wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just an example. He was those things, but he was much more than those things. He wasn't just a good moral man. That Jesus Christ is the eternal God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Colossians 2.9 literally says that everything that is God is permanently housed in Jesus Christ in bodily form. Romans 9.5 calls him the eternally blessed God. Revelation 1.8 calls him the Almighty. Uh, Thomas said, my Lord and my God, and Jesus uh, to Jesus, and he received that as worship. Uh, you know, I could spend hours just unpacking all the references uh, to the deity of Christ in the New Testament. So, Jesus is God, but it says here, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And and literally in this context, it can have a couple of different meanings from the Greek. It means it's not, he didn't consider this something to be held on to. But then the next phrase in verse 7 says that he made himself of no reputation. Literally, he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of the outward manifestation of his divine glory. He emptied himself of the possessions and the privileges of of heaven. He emptied himself of the independent exercise of 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 his divine attributes. He surrendered, submitted himself to the will of the Father. I mean, Jesus functionally was always equal to the Father, but when he became as a man, um, practically... Living as a man, living under the law, he was lesser in that sense. Not in his nature, but in his position during that particular uh, time. It, 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 it Maybe an analogy of that would be something like, uh, take Ju- Judge Sloan here. Uh, Judge Sloan and I are equal as men. I mean, you, right here, right now, uh, you know, just as human beings, we're both made in the image of God. We're on the same plane, but I walk in his courtroom, and that dynamic changes, not because of who he is or who I am, but because of his position and uh, his authority that comes from that position and, you know, his gavel and the cute little dress that he gets to wear and, uh, you know, those kind of things. So... In our nature, that doesn't change. Um, But by position, it's different. Or, you know, you get pulled over by a police officer on your way home today. I mean, and you try to say to him, well, you're no better than I am. You can't give me a ticket. That's half true. He's not any different than you, but in the virtue of his position, he can write you a ticket. So Jesus always was always is, even when he's on the earth, always will be in his nature, God, so he's equal to the Father, but he made himself of no reputation. And the next phrase says he took the form of a bondservant. We saw in in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, literally means a slave. He came as the slave of God. He came under the law of God. He came to do the will of, uh, of God. So he humbled himself for us and positionally, put himself in that place. Does that make sense? It says he came in the likeness of men. So what Christian theology says, and it's like three mysteries for the price of one. 
God is one, but he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Genuinely, truly God, genuinely, truly a human being in every way like as we are, yet without sin, through the incarnation which was achieved by the means of the virgin birth. Three mysteries for the price of one. But we're saying that that Jesus is not just a man, a religious leader, a teacher, those kind of things. You say, Jimmy, I'm not sure about that. Why would you believe that? Well, I believe that because I believe the historical evidence demonstrates that Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, if that's a historical fact, it validates his claim to be God in human flesh. That's why I believe it. If you're not sure what you believe, I'd love to talk to you about that. But then the next verse says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. I mean, he had already humbled himself as God to come as a bondservant, as a slave, as, as a man born of a baby, born as a baby, living like any one of us, God having his diapers changed. And then you know, growing up as, as a kid, and I know it's hard to understand. I mean, could you imagine being one of his brothers or sisters? Like, um, there, there, there's a joke in, in, in my family about Molly the, from the other two kids. Like, ooh, she's the perfect one. Because she probably has gotten in less trouble than the other two of them over the course of their lives. But, like, if Jesus' brothers and sisters said that, it was like actually true. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? He never did anything wrong. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, his parents had to be confused. It's like, what we do wrong with all the rest of them, you know, because they were trying to figure all this out. But I mean, you know, he's growing up as a kid. He's, he's living as a man. I mean, he had humbled himself. I mean, that, he left aside, you know, the glory, the splendor, the majesty, the beauty, the perfection, the eternal worship of the, or not eternal, but almost eternal worship of the, the angels in heaven. And he humbled himself. But he humbled himself even farther than that, it says here. Became obedient all the way to the point of death, but not just death, the death of the cross. One of the worst deaths imaginable. Death by torture. Execution through prolonged suffering. I mean, a common criminal's death. A death so bad that Romans wouldn't speak of it in polite company. That's how low he went for us. And he did this so that we could be saved. God left heaven, came to earth, became one of us, and he lived the perfect life that we failed to live. And he died the death that we deserve to die in our place because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. God is holy, and he must punish sin. He must uphold his law to actually uh, fulfill his nature as God. We've all sinned. We've all broken God's law. We've all fallen short. But the grace of God is that Jesus came and took our place. He died our death sentence. He bore our sins so that we could be forgiven. But then the... First word of verse 9 is therefore. Because of this, 
God has also highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the, the Father. So, in other words, if you're not a Christian, what God wants you to see today is that you're not saved by Jesus' example. You're saved because he's God who came and became a man and who lived a perfect life and died a death in your place and rose from the dead. And that demonstrates he's Lord. And now he's exalted to the right hand of the Father. And so he's listening to us. And his arm is not shortened that he cannot save. And he's, he can intervene on our behalf. And he gives grace and mercy. And if you'll humble yourself and admit that you're a sinner and admit that you can't save your and you'll turn to him and trust him and confess him as Lord, then he'll forgive you and cleanse you and make you new and make you a child of God. I mean, it's a beautiful expression of the gospel in this passage. But Paul, in his concern here, in, in the context here, is speaking to Christians about the example of Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So I want us to think about this question for a couple minutes. How is he our example for treating other people? How is he our example for living we instead of me? And I just want to point out quickly five ways that we see that in these verses. Number one, he thought of us instead of himself. If he was thinking of himself, he would have stayed on his throne in heaven. Think about that. He thought of us. That's why he came. I mean, that's not the only reason he came. He came for the glory of God. He came, you know, to absorb the wrath of God. I mean, and ultimately there's a sense in which Jesus died for the Father and we received the benefit of it. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He came for us. He came as a servant. He came as a servant. I mean, if we think we're too good to serve others, Jesus said, Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If you want to live like Jesus, live as a servant. Number three, how did he treat other people? Well, he lived with humility. He humbled himself to become a man. He humbled himself all the way to death on a cross. He lived sacrificially. He made the ultimate sacrifice. He sacrificed himself for us. The Bible says, no greater love has a man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. But Jesus didn't die for us when we were his friends. He died for us and when we were his enemies to make us his friends. That's the grace of the gospel. And then ultimately, he lived to glorify God. And how does that set an example in treating other people? Because the reality is, if we want to treat other people right, the best way to do that is to live for the glory of God instead of our own glory. So I want to share something from you, uh, with you from Tim Keller that I think encapsulates this in, in just a great way. So he says this. He says, some years ago I read a meditation by Tom Howard, a Catholic writer and brother of the famous missionary Elizabeth Elliot that really made a difference to me. I want to paraphrase it as best I remember it. Howard said to look to, at the temple, God planned every little architectural detail about the temple 
or tabernacle, and everything is laid out precisely to his specs. Remember some of those passages in the Old Testament that are really hard to read? It's like, why all this detail? There's a point to it. Okay? He says, but when you get to the center, and and this is a beautiful point, which in a certain sense is the center of the universe, the very center of reality, what do you get? No image. There's no image to bow down to. Because at the heart of reality is a gold slab, the mercy seat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant over the law where the blood is sprinkled. And you see, the Ark of the Covenant symbolizes the presence of God. The mercy seat symbolizes the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that brings us into the presence of God. And so, Keller says, God is saying to us that the very heart of reality, the very heart of creation and redemption, is my life for yours. My life for yours. But think about this. Sin makes us operate on an opposite principle. Sin says, your life for mine. We're going to live one of two ways. I mean, maybe not exclusively. We may go back and forth a little bit. But when it comes to how we treat other people, we're either going to live my life for yours or your life for mine. He says, I'm going to make you sacrifice for me, for my interest, for my self-image. You must sacrifice your needs to serve mine. But Jesus came into the world saying, my life for you, my life to serve you, my life poured out for you, I sacrifice for you. That's the example that he's setting. He says those are the two ways you can live your life. And every single day, every hour, you decide to operate on one of those principles. All real love is a substitutionary sacrifice. My life for yours. Parents, you've seen this. You have this wonderful plan for the day and then something happens. Your kid gets sick has a need, melts down, and you really need to spend time with your child. Which is it going to be? You can die and say, my life for you. You can sacrifice yourself for that child in a sense and have that child grow up feeling loved. In other words, you can die so your child will live. Or you can never sacrifice. You can never die to yourself in your parenting life. You can constantly say, sorry, I have my needs, I have my schedule, I have my goals, and you can't get in the way And your child will grow up broken. We have a generation of broken children growing up precisely because of that reason. I mean, it it applies in any relational sense. I mean, just just think about friendships or, or acquaintances. We can treat people in a way, we can use people to get something from them. Or we can genuinely love them and sacrifice for them. Right? And we know the difference. Like, if, if we do something for somebody when they can't do something in return, that's love. Or if we do something for somebody down deep, hoping to get something in return from it, that's not really love. Think about sex. I mean, you can pursue someone sexually as an object and as a conquest, 
your life for mine or my life for yours as you make a marriage covenant. You love that person. You treat that person in the right way. You put their needs first, and then you develop your sexual relationship in the same way. He says, all real love is a substitutionary sacrifice, my life for yours. And essentially, that's what Paul tells us. You can live life that way, and you can go into relationships that way, my life for yours. Or you can go the old way, the vainglorious way, your life for mine. And the example that Jesus set was my life for yours. Now, if we know we're supposed to follow his example... You know, maybe our thought is, well, I'm not Jesus, right? That sounds good, but I fall so far short. And and if we're honest, maybe the starting place is admitting that we're all naturally prideful and selfish, and we want our own way, and we want people to meet our needs, and that's something that we're going to have to fight against every day of our lives. And so the question would be is if we see, okay, this is the way he wants us to live. We, instead of me, because of him, how do we live it out? And, well, That's where verse 1 is important because here we see that the empowering for living we instead of me is our union with Jesus. You see, there's nothing that God tells us to do that he doesn't give us what we need to do it with. The Bible says that he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. That he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's given us the Holy Spirit. And so, in verse 1 again, it says, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. Now, there's three things we probably need to understand about this verse to actually understand it. One is, you know, the therefore connects it back to what he was just saying, what uh, we've been looking at a couple of weeks ago. So he says, only let your uh, conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So he's rooting and grounding this in the gospel. He's saying, you know, Jesus died for us. He rose from the dead to give us new life, to make us one together in him. Live out of that. A second thing we need to understand is the word if there. And and there's some technical reasons it's translated if that I won't get into. But really it's saying since. It's assuming a case that's true. He's not saying it might be that you have the fellowship of the Spirit or it might be that you have consolation in Christ. He's saying you do have these things. And since this is the case, in verses 2 through 4, he says, do these things. But then, maybe the key to the whole thing, this little phrase, in Christ. You see, spiritually speaking, there's two kinds of people. There's people who are in Adam, still dead in their sins, in the old person, or were in Christ. And to be in Christ means to be connected to him, to be united with him, to be in relationship with him, that we're in him and he's in us. And so what this means then practically is, is that we don't have to try to follow Jesus' example in our own resources, which we could never do, that the way to live this out is by living in connection with Jesus where he lives through us. 
John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. How do we live like a branch connected to the vine? So it's Jesus' life flowing through us. When we're disconnected, then we're on our own trying to do it uh, ourselves. He says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I'm in Christ. He's in me. And so the key to how we treat other people is to live connected to him so the power of his spirit is flowing through our lives. You know, when we let things come between our fellowship with him, if there's sin in our lives, if we're not spending time with him, if we're not in prayer and in the word, if we're not filled with the spirit, if we're not seeking him and worshiping him, then we're disconnected from the power source. You know, uh, if, if you Google this, there's some crazy things that have caused major power outages. Squirrels and transformers have caused thousands of people to be without power. Snakes and in, in transformers have caused thousands of people uh, to be without power. You know, all kinds of crazy things. And if we let something come between us and Jesus, then we've kind of disconnected ourselves from the power source. And what I find is if I lose my spiritual focus, if I'm not spending time with him like I should, if, you know, if there's something he wants me to do that I'm not doing, if there's a sin that I'm hanging on to, it ends up affecting the way I treat other people. I think about myself instead of other people. I'm snippier, uh, grumpier, um, you know, just more about me than I am uh, uh, other people. And so what I'm saying is if we're having relational difficulties, the core relationship at the center of our life is Jesus. Maybe we need to check that out before we check in. You know, the the relationship of people are fruit. That's the root. So what what are these four resources that we have here in Christ? If you look back in verse 1, he says here, any consolation in Christ? The word consolation basically means encouragement. Jesus is an encourager. And so here's the reality. Hurt people hurt other people. Encouraged people encourage other people. And remember, what's on the inside is what comes out of us. You know, uh, for example, Scott Rippey's one of the most positive, encouraging, upbeat people uh, th- that I know. I really appreciate that about Scott. And, and I said to Scott the other day, one of my rules of thumbs would be at True Life, that if Scott's not positive about something, we really actually have a problem. <laughs> and I, I think that's the kind of people God wants us to be, but it flows out of who we are in Christ. One of the things that just annoys me, one of my biggest pet peeves, as Christians, and I understand life's hard sometimes, but if we're in Christ, is there really a reason for us to be negative about everything? But hurting people hurt other people. It's just a rule of life. Encourage people, encourage other people. But he's saying, find your encouragement in me. He says here the second phrase, that there is comfort from his love. 
But, but notice this, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. So in other words, God is, is a comforter. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. But as His comforter flows to us, we're called to be channels and not reservoirs. As we experience his comfort, we're to think we instead of me and be a comfort to others. Three here, he says, we have the fellowship of the Spirit. We have joint participation in and common life through the same Holy Spirit. And again, if we have God, the Holy Spirit, living inside of every believer, why wouldn't we be able to get along with each other? Right? I mean, it doesn't mean we're going to agree about everything, look at everything the same way. But, I mean, if we have the Spirit living inside of us, I mean, why shouldn't we be able to love each other at least, care about each other, be there for each other, treat each other the right way? Well, here's the reason. You know, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, goodness, uh, meekness, self-control, those kind of things. But it says there, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. If those things aren't coming out of us, it means we're not walking in the Spirit. We're not abiding in Christ. We're not connected to our power source. And so the problem is always inside of us, ultimately. I'm not saying there's not problems in the world, but the heart of every problem is ultimately a heart problem. We've got to look on the inside instead of blaming everybody for everything that's going on in the world. Do you know people that it seems like they can't get along with anybody? And everybody else is always the problem. But there's always and only one common denominator which is them, and everybody else can see it but them, don't be that person. He says, last thing, that there's affection and mercy, which means there's tenderness and compassion in Christ. And so, again, Jesus sets the example, but he empowers us. He gives us the resources to, to, to live this out. And then the way that we live it out, the way we actually express it, is by obeying Jesus. And so he gives us some commands in verses 2 through 4. And, and, and I think these commands, these verses, these three verses can be grouped around three words. Verse 2 speaks of unity. Verse 3 speaks of humility. And verse 4 speaks of consideration. Uh, notice what he says in, in verse 2. He says to be he says to fulfill my joy. In other words, you want me to have joy even while I'm in prison, you do this. No pressure. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm your beloved Apostle Paul. I'm just in prison, and this is all I'm asking from you. But really, it's God speaking through him. He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And it, and it speaks to unite doctrinally through the truth and unite relationally through love. Like-minded, one mind would speak truth. Same love of one accord would speak relationship. And both of those are important. You know something that confuses people who aren't Christians? It's like why Christians talk so much about the love of Jesus, 
and then don't love each other. I mean, it's just true. And you know what? They're right to have that question, to have that thought. You know, I read a story about a church that, that got in a big fight and split and ended up in court trying to, you know, which you know, the Bible tells Christians not to take each other to civil court. And, uh, but they ended up in court trying to resolve the dispute and the property and, and all this kind of stuff. And, I mean, it, you know, it was in the newspaper and, and, and this kind of thing, not local. But uh, you know what the, the root of, of this whole mess was? That a hostess at a church meal served a larger portion of ham to a child than to one of the elders in the church. And this whole thing devolved from that. I mean, how ridiculous. I mean, no wonder, you know, people are like, why do I want anything to do with Jesus if this is what Christians are like? But, but he's telling us here to live in unity with one another. But why? Because of the example he set, because of the resources he's given us, because we have this fellowship in the Holy Spirit. But if we're going to have unity, verse 3, it requires humility. I mean, what was the root of that dispute? Pride. Listen, we're all prideful people. Let's just admit that up front. If you think you don't have a pride problem, you're the most proud person in the room. <laughs> all of us fight with pride. I think C.S. Lewis is right when he says that, the, that pride is kind of the mother of all sins. It's what made Satan Satan. It's the root of it all. You go to the garden, it was pride. You know, they thought, hey, we can be, we can be God too. That was the lie that he told them. We want to do our own thing. We want to have our own way. We're prideful. And listen, proud people can't have good relationships. It just doesn't work. Proud people can't have good relationships. And so in verse 3, as he addresses this, there's actually two commands here. There's a negative command and a positive command. The negative command is don't do anything through selfish ambition or conceit. But the positive command is, in loneliness of mind, esteem others better than ourselves. In other words, put others ahead of ourselves. But there's something that's interesting here. The word conceit. It's an interesting word, and it's hard to translate. From the Greek, it's actually a compound word, kinodoxa. And it literally means empty of glory. And it's like... Empty of glory, conceit. Well, uh, I think understanding this phrase is one of the most important things if you want to overcome pride. So there's a man by the name of Richard Simmons III, not the old infomercial uh, guy, uh, wrote a blog, and he said this. He said in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker writes about our great need for what he calls cosmic significance. He says this need is so powerful that whatever we end up basing our identity on becomes our deity. This need for cosmic significance explains so much of our natural tendency to be full of pride. And then he, addressed, he quotes Tim Keller uh, speaking of Philippians 2.3. and he, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. This phrase, selfish ambition, actually means vainglory. 
It, it means that a person is empty or starving for glory. It means that we're desperate for recognition and affirmation. And Simmons goes on and says, fundamentally, we're haunted by a deep fear that our lives don't really matter. Keller says the worst thing for a human being is not being disliked or vilified, but instead being ignored and considered insignificant. The human heart fears being so unimportant and worthless in the eyes of others that our lives don't matter to the people around us. For this reason, though we may not be aware of it, every human heart in its deepest recesses is seeking extensive glory. We are driven to win the approval of others because we're starved for glory. He says, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. And then in this blog post, he gives a prescription for overcoming this. And he says the cure is humility. But I think he's wrong. Because how does it help to say, be humble? Right? We all know that we ought to be humble. But how do we just like snap our fingers and be humble? And the problem with that is, if I could do that, then I would be proud of my humility and I wouldn't be humble anymore. You ever done that? You ever thought, man, I'm getting pretty humble these days, and then it's done with. I think Tim Keller, echoing Scripture, gives a better cure for our desire for recognition, our vain glory, our conceit, and it's the cross. The cure for pride is the cross. Why? Galatians 6.14 says, God forbid that I boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. To boast in means to, be, to glory in, to brag about, to find my identity in. And, and if you think about it, and I don't have time to unpack all this, what a crazy statement. I boast in the cross. I mean, why would you boast in a cross? Why would you boast in somebody getting executed by torture? In, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul, in talking about the cross, says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he goes on later in the chapter, he talks about how God uses the weak and the mighty and the foolish. And he says, why? Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, let he who glories... Glory in the Lord. In Galatians 5.26, Paul had written this. He says, let us not become conceited, that same word, kinodoxa. Uh, let us not become vainglorious, provoking one another, envying one another. And John Stott says of this, either if we're vainglorious, in other words, if we're seeking glory in ourselves instead of in the cross, we're either going to end up with a superiority complex provoking one another, or an inferiority complex envying one another. You see, insecurity is a manifestation of pride, too, because it's still about me. A lot of people that you think are prideful, like uh, they're not really like arrogant. They're just insecure. And they do things to try to compensate for that. And so it, what he's saying is, is if we're not 
seeking the glory of Jesus, if we're seeking our own glory, it's going to manifest itself. And with some people, it's going to be by provoking others, some by envying others. But either way, is not a healthy way to relate to people. So again, the cure is not be more humble. The cure is to look to the cross. Because when we look to the cross, this is what we realize. That I am so flawed that it took the death of the Son of God to save me. But I am so loved and accepted that the, because the Son of God died for me. That I am a child of God. And listen, I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to try to be somebody. I am somebody because Christ is in me, because God is my Father, because Jesus gave his life for me. And so out of that, I don't have to go around seeking my own glory. I can live uh, for his glory, and I can live in security knowing who I am in him, which that's what frees us up to treat other people the right way. So again, we're looking to Jesus and looking to the cross and trusting him and connected to him. Out of that is when we can begin to love and treat other people the right way. And then verse 4, he talks about consideration. He says, don't just take care of yourself. Don't just look to your own needs. He's not saying, you know, don't look out for your own needs and interests, but he says also for the interest of others. Look basically means to stare at. In other words, he's saying, get our eyes off ourselves. Don't just be looking at ourselves all the time and look around And look at other people's needs too. So, what he's saying here, Jesus said, I've set this example for you. I mean, I gave up my life for you. I'm in you. So by my power, then you can treat other people the right way. You can live in unity. You can live with humility. You can consider others and think about others and not just yourself like I did. And that's how he's calling us to live. We instead of me because of him. Now to finish, I want to circle back to verses 9 through 11 for a minute. And I want us to read them again and I want us to notice something here. God, therefore, has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Therefore, God is also. Why did God exalt him? He exalted him because he humbled himself. Because he surrendered himself. He sacrificed himself. Now God has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Here's the principle. Humility leads to exaltation, but self-exaltation leads to humiliation. Humility leads to exaltation, but self-exaltation leads to humiliation. I heard a preacher say one time, God's plan A is humility. God's plan B is humiliation. It's true. I've found God to be extremely patient with me. But there's one area I've never found him to be patient with, and that's my pride. It seems that that's something that he disciplines swiftly and ruthlessly. Uh, I mean, that's not something that he plays around with. According to Proverbs, one of the things that he hates. 
And notice what 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 says. It says, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Why? For God God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you, that he may lift you up in due time. Again, if we try to lift ourselves up in the face of God, he's going to bring us down. But if we humble ourselves before God, he's going to lift us up. So, If you're a Christian, what does God want you to do with this? There's one of two ways we can live our lives. Your life for mine or my life for yours. We're going to live in the power of Jesus, following the example of Jesus, pursuing humility and and unity and and considering others and serving others and trying to meet others' needs. Are Are we going to be a giver or are we going to be a taker? Are we in community with other Christians? I mean, is it all me or is it we? Am I giving and receiving ministry? Some of you, uh, you know, a great application of this for you would be get plugged into a small group. Some of you need to use your spiritual gifts and, and serve in the church. Some of you just need to be, you know, looking for people and needs that you can meet day in and, and day out in, in your life. Some of us need to take this and apply it in our family and be more servant-hearted, more considerate of others there. Maybe some of us need to go have some relationships that we need to fix Maybe there's somebody we need to forgive, somebody we need to ask forgiveness from. Maybe some of you aren't Christians. And I hope you see today that whatever you've heard, and maybe whatever you've seen from Christians, that Christianity is not really about Christians, it's about Christ. And a true Christian is not saying, I've got it all together, so be like me. A true Christian is saying, I'm all screwed up. I need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. And I hope you see that Jesus is not just a man, that he's God, that he left heaven. He came to earth. He died for you. He rose from the dead. He's now in heaven, and you can call on his name. And if you'll uh, ask him to forgive you of your sins, and you'll look to him and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll repent and surrender to him as the Lord of your life, that he'll forgive you and make you new, and he'll come and be in your life. And that's the way that we're connected with God. So, if we could, let's bow our heads and close our eyes.